Welcome to King's Health Partners Hematology Primary Care Podcast Series, the KHP Hematology Pearls. Uh, I'm Winnie Kwan, I'm a GP from Bexley, and I am uh, delighted that we are joined by uh, Dr. Deepti Radia, consultant hematologist at Geisens and Thomas's today. And our podcast will be focusing on abnormalities in the blood count. Um, there are some common queries that primary care colleagues have sent to me, and I am very grateful that uh, Dr. Uh, Deepti Radia will be helping us to um, provide these solutions. So I would just like to kick off, uh, Deepti, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, how do we manage raised MCV and what tests um, that we should do and when to refer if all other tests were negative on the, on the uh, raised MCV? And is it true that people generally have a very stable MCV so that a change is often significant? So MCV, Winnie, is such a common, common referral, both in the ANG and in general. And um, so a raised MCV uh, can be a lot of different causes. And we say that the standard tests, apart from initially, as we've said with all the patients, you need to take a decent clinical history. Something may have changed. So but in terms of the initial first line tests, we would be looking at uh, a blood film, potentially in addition to that um, full blood count that will have raised the MCV. We within the departments have our own alerts to do blood films when they reach particular limits in terms of the MCV. But other basic tests which are really common are checking liver liver function tests because liver dysfunction causes uh, a raised MCV. Looking at thyroid function tests, hypothyroidism is a common cause of a raised MCV. Um, Looking at alcohol intake. So, you know, uh, somebody who has alcohol excess will have a raised MCV and that may continue to rise and uh, making sure that actually quite a significant history is taken in terms of any drug changes, any changes in their medication is really quite important. So what I'll say to my uh, juniors usually is do the full blood count. If the MCV is raised, knowing that the normal parameters are usually between 80 and 100 femtoliters, MCVs fluctuate between all of us. So if they fluctuate, go up and down by from 100 to 102, 103 and come back down again, not to worry. That's what I mean by stable. But if they're increasingly and going up by five femtoliters or above 110, there is something that's causing that change in that red cell volume. Um, and again, look at histories. People change their medications. So we know that there are drugs that cause a raised MCV. Have they been started on something recently? Antiepileptics, has there been a change in their diabetic medication? Have they started hydro- hydroxycarbamide or azathioprine or something rheumatologically? That's the first question. What's changed? to make that change in the MCV, because usually it's stable, uh, and make sure that a drug history is taken. So the baseline tests, the ones that I've already mentioned, uh, the clinical history, the most common cause of raised MCV is raised alcohol. Um, and it's really speaking to your patients. Sometimes we would check a gamma GT, but that's not necessarily going to help. It's getting that history from the patient. Liver function test, thyroid function test, full blood count, and we would do a blood film. That's really helpful. Thank you so oh, much. And not forgetting B12 and folate, which are really common. And we are going to have a separate podcast on B12. Uh, so that, that will answer more questions. Yes, of course. Thank you. Right. So the next question is, how would you advise us on the management of a raised hemoglobin level, please? Again, a really another common, common thing, isn't it, really? So when, looking, when I'm thinking about raised hemoglobin, I'm thinking about, is it a primary cause? And from a hematology point of view, we're looking at polycythemia rubrovera, primary you know erythrocytosis but that is very rare compared to the more common causes of raised hemoglobin 
So from our perspective, dehydration is a really common cause. So making sure that that blood test, you know, patients will come in in the morning to have the blood test done, not having drunk all overnight. So when is a raised PCV or raised hemoglobin uh, relevant? In females, if you have a hemoglobin that's high with a PCV of above 0.48 regularly, that is relevant. And in males, if it's above 0.52, that is relevant on two separate readings. Having excluded dehydration and other causes that may have just made that one single reading up. And then secondary causes, being aware of the secondary causes of erased hemoglobin. And in my head, I split them into kind of two main areas. There's either going to be a problem with oxygen delivery in that particular patient causing hypoxia, which makes your kidneys produce more EPO, therefore produce erased hemoglobin, or a problem with the kidneys. And I would suggest looking at things like central hypoxia, lung problems, COPD, uh, tissues with um, cardiac shunts and things. And then also looking at uh, sleep apnea, other reasons why there's gonna be hypoxia, which are also common, looking at weight, um, looking at uh, tumors that produce EPO. So common things like fibroid, cerebellar tumors, uh, they can cause a raised EPO. And then people are taking uh, testosterone, increased androgen use will cause a raised EPO level. Um, EPO, people are actually taking EPO recreationally. So just make sure that you've spoken to folk that aren't taking androgens from that point of view. So that's kind of the general, very general overview of looking at secondary causes. And if they're persistent within those margins, and if a patient has hepatosplenomegaly or in high cardiovascular risk factors, because we're worried about clots, please don't be concerned and use advice and guidance in the first instance, or contact us so that we can kind of guide towards where the tests need to go in terms of treatment. Well, wow, that's amazing. I've learned a lot there. So on, so on to our next question. This is quite common. We often see people with slightly raised white count, either neutrophils or monocytes for years, and uh, but they are asymptomatic. What should we do about that? Yeah, tricky, because if they're clinically asymptomatic, you're wondering what this test shows. So uh, again, how high is the white cell count? If they're asymptomatic, sometimes you can get subclinical infections. Are the inflammatory markers normal? Uh, very low white cell counts can be raised. And if they're persistent, then doing a blood film because we may see morphological changes. So we've picked up patients with chronic myeloid leukemia with very low counts of about 15 or 20. Knowing that the upper limit is about 11, 11 and a half, you kind of think, where is it relevant? So if you ask for a blood film, Morphological changes might guide us into saying, please send in for hematology. Don't forget that the commonest cause of a mildly raised neutrophilia is smoking. A lot of people smoke. So we do tend to see a neutrophilia in patients who are smokers and everything else is usually within the normal limit. Um, judge the raised neutrophilia in context with the other parameters. Is the hemoglobin, the other full blood count parameters, hemoglobins and platelets normal? And if there is a monocytosis, uh, there is a CMML, CMML as opposed to CML is another condition, which can present be asymptomatic and CMML naught can present with dysplastic features with a monocyte count of above one. So again, if you've got these counts of monocytes above one that are persistent, neutrophils that are heading up and above 15 and 20 that are persistent, you can't find a cause. Again, that would be where I would say, use advice and guidance, have a conversation, call us and then we can see whether we need to bring the patients in or advise any further because these patients are quite common in, in the way that they present as well. Well, thank you so much. That's so helpful. Right, the last question is on eosinophilia. So after considering atopy, chest problems, gastritis, in the absence of foreign travel, what next in terms of investigation? 
or if they have traveled, what should, how should we then manage, please? So this is another huge topic, and I think we may have to save it for a separate podcast on its own. So as a first liner, eosinophilia is usually reactive. Very, very rarely is it clonal and primary hematological, and the most common causes are ATPs, GI tract, chest, lung, asthma, dermatological, and travel. In terms of travel, quite commonly um, it is parasites, so looking at hookworm or even stronguloides, depending on where people come from. So doing a stronguloides uh, ELISA test looking for the antigen is usually helpful because you can then treat them with ivermectin. And so I think the getting a thorough history is really important. And I think perhaps if we could save this for another podcast, we can go through each different area that can cause an eosinophilia and the thresholds for which sending to hematology, because you can send these patients everywhere. And it's really about having a pathway, isn't it? Will that be okay? Thank you so much, Dipchi. There's a lot to um, for us to ponder upon already. Thank yeah, you so and much. There, there are kind of little podcasts to help us learn a little bit at each point. Um, so I think as part of this series, this would be number two. And I'd like to thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Winnie, because the questions are always interesting and we all learn something along the way. Please spread your word to your colleagues by sharing the link. And again, we'd really appreciate it if you would complete the poll to let us know what you thought of this particular podcast. If you have any unanswered questions on this topic, let us know. And if there are topics you'd like to focus in the future, we're very much looking forward to developing this Haematology Primary Care podcast series with your input. So let us know if you'd like to be involved in any future episodes.